A great psalm, a psalm that helps us as we begin to prepare our hearts for, for Easter, for the celebration. In fact, it has in this psalm some words, save us we pray, verse 25, that word that was, we quote as Hosanna, Christ's triumphal entry, and uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So let's... Uh, open our hearts in prayer this morning. Um, we're going to move away from James for the next couple of weeks uh, because, of, because of Easter. And so just shift our thinking a little bit to focus in on this, this yearly celebration of Christ, of the cross, of what he accomplished for us. So let's pray together. Father, thank you Thank you for how our hearts have been prepared already through this worship, a focus on you, a focus on who you are, what you've done, what you've done for us, Lord. I pray that just each one of us, as we have gathered here this morning, it would be with a consideration, the salvation that you bought for us at Calvary. We want to honor you, Lord. We want to honor you through our understanding of truth. We want to honor you with our lives that are changed. We want to honor you even in this time in your word. I just pray that you'd move distractions from us and that you would give us hearts prepared to hear from you and that you would lead in this time. And we will give you the glory, Lord. Lead us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Well then, what does the Lord's Prayer say? That was the first time I'd heard on a dusty path outside of the village in the, in the Andes Mountains. The first time I heard Bert use this approach of sharing the gospel. He said, what does the Lord's Prayer say to a very religious person? And they began, our Father who art in heaven, how be your name, your kingdom come. Then he asked, what do we know about every kingdom? What does every kingdom have? And the lady replied tentatively, a king. And he asked, who is the king of this kingdom? And she rightly answered, God. And then he asked, how should we respond to a king? What does the next line of the prayer say he prompted her and she said it says your will be done and he asked is this the sort of relationship that you have with God and slowly he would draw the gospel out of the person's own mouth as he questioned them about this this very common prayer, one they were felt familiar with, one they had said thousands of times, to help them realize just how far short 
we fall in this relationship and to help explain to them how Jesus Christ came into this world to make up for our shortcomings, to pay the penalty for our sin through his sacrificial death on the cross and how his resurrection enables us to come into the kingdom, to be a part of the kingdom, to be loyal subjects that serve the king even as we stumble through this troubled life. And that is really the question that I want to be on our minds today. How is it that we should respond to the king? Especially as we live in his very presence. Next week is Palm Sunday. And we're moving toward the yearly celebration of our Lord's death and burial and resurrection. And we need to be reminded to be preparing our hearts. We, we use this as a time of focus. And that's something that's been very common in the church from its beginning, even before the church. God used all sorts of celebrations and festivals and this sort of thing to turn people's attention to himself, to some truth, to something important that they needed to be remembering. And of course, exalting him was one of them. And there are other parts of God's church, other more liturgical churches that uh, follow traditions preparing them for Easter. One you probably heard of is called Lent. Have you heard of Lent? And uh, Lent starts with Ash Wednesday. And what they'll do is they'll take uh, the ashes and they will smear them on their forehead and I was thinking of that, you know, our preparation for, um, for Easter and what that could mean, what that would mean. Well, of course, we know that throughout the Old Testament, there were people who were in repentance, covered in ashes, right? Sackcloth and ashes. It was something, it was a recognition of their sinfulness, there's also another thing I was thinking of, I just reading of as I'm reading through the minor prophets. And as I read through Zechariah, one of the visions that he had was of the priest Joshua. And the priest Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, it says, and Satan in this vision. And Joshua had dirty clothes. And of course, a representation of Israel's sin. And Satan was accusing, was accusing him. How can you accept this guy? Look at he's filthy. He's no good. And the Lord said, the angel of the Lord said, is this not a brand, not a common word, that has been plucked from the fire? A stick, a burning stick that was, you know, should go through the fire, but I've plucked it from the fire. Now, you might have noticed as you came in this morning, uh, I have an object lesson at the back. I had a little bit of a craft time yesterday. And it wasn't something that I was thinking, oh, this is the perfect object lesson. It was something that came as I was preparing, as I was studying, as I was thinking through this week and what I was preaching on. And it just sort of slowly came together together 
And what there is at the back there, the first thing, is there are a bunch of charred sticks, ashes. And you know, we see those sticks and it's obvious that they were burning yesterday. I let them burn a little bit and then pulled them from the fire. And that's really what the Lord was saying about Joshua the priest. And it's really a consideration of ourselves, of our sinfulness. I don't think any one of you are going to want to take one of those little sticks home and display it and say, hey, look at this. Let's put this on our mantle. It's kind of, kind of cute, you know. Let's glue on some flowers to it and make a little... No, it's, it's something that any one of us would say is kind of useless. It's a reminder for us of our sinfulness. A reminder of us of our worthiness to only be judged and yet the Lord plucked us from the fire. And so as people go into preparing for the remembrance of the cross, there's this preparation, there's this repentance, there's this recalibration or readjusting of our focus in light of the celebration of the coming of the king, his first coming. And this week as I was thinking of that, I was thinking of the pre-triumphal entry. Next week, yes, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. But there was a first triumphal entry and I sort of stumbled across this in, in reading and preparing for Easter a few years ago, a couple years back, and I was just, came back to my mind and I thought, you know, I think I want to focus in on that. We're not into Palm Sunday yet, but this in preparation for backing up just a little bit, getting our hearts in gear, I want to focus on that first triumphal entry. And if you turn with me to Luke chapter 19, we're going to study this first triumphal entry together you'll notice you'll realize where I'm going immediately once you get to Luke chapter 19 verse 1 in 28 uh, it begins with the triumphal entry that we're all familiar with but if you back up to verse 1 and I'm going to do this a little differently this week just going to read through it and going to add comments as we go through it we recognize that this is the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, or so it says in the song that we, that we learned back in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Do you guys know that one? Some of you do? You want to sing it? No, we won't sing it together. Let's begin this chapter together. It says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. He, of course, we're talking about Jesus. But what do we notice in that verse 1? Jericho was not his goal. Passages earlier, it says, Jesus set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem He knew what he was going for. His disciples were going, why are we going to Jerusalem? The antagonism is at an all-time high. And then it was Thomas, 
the doubter who said, let's just go and die with him. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, but he's passing through Jericho. Jericho was often called the city of palms. Sounds like a beautiful place. But Jericho means Jer city of sweet smell. Apparently it had many aromatic products coming from Jericho. And he was going to Jerusalem, which was city of peace. Do you know what? There was no peace for Jesus when he arrived in Jerusalem. But there was a sweet aroma of repentance in Jericho. Verse 2 says, And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. There's something I only noticed this time studying this story, and that was that he was the chief tax collector. But let's begin with this idea of him being rich. We know the many things that were said throughout the scripture about riches. We know how the disciples questioned Jesus about it, and he responded to them how hard it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because of the distractions of riches. Because they're a part of another kingdom. Because their focus is on something else. And we don't become rich by mistake. Especially not in that time. In that day and age. It's a lot of hard work. And I would suggest that this guy Zacchaeus is not simply ambitious, but he was ruthless. You think of it. He moved to the top of the pile of men who had sold out their own people to the Romans. He was the chief tax collector, not just one of the -the run-of-the-mill despised tax collectors, but he was in charge of this thing that was called taxing. They called it, actually, there's another term for it, tax farming is what these guys did. Because Rome demanded a certain amount of tax and they would demand a certain amount more so that they could skim from the profits. And this was called tax farming. And so you can imagine why the tax collectors were despised. You imagine how he would have had to been ruthless to be in charge of this sort of a taxation. As an enemy state took over his own country and he turned against his own people. Verse 3 says, he, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. What are we told there? Well, there was a crushing crowd. A whole lot of people just like at the entrance to Jerusalem. In that event that we normally call the triumphal entry. 
and we read that Zacchaeus was short, we might have we might think he had small man syndrome. You've heard of that. It's described as making up for a supposed inadequacy with aggressive behavior. And we might agree that he had small man syndrome as we read the next verse which says, so he ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, Jesus, for he was about to pass by. I wonder what the crowd was thinking as they followed along, as they pressed in to try and get close to Jesus And they see this guy, this little guy go scampering by. And they go, there he is again. There's that Zacchaeus. He's scrambling, he's scratching to get ahead, to get above, to outperform everyone else. What's his problem? Why does he have to be this way? Why is Zacchaeus... The guy who already has everything. He's already rich. Why does he have to see Jesus so badly? What what does he want? Did he want to get a valuable autograph that he could sell later for a lot of money? Was it a view to satisfy his own curiosity? Or was he vexed? Because he had everything. He was filthy rich in the truest sense of the word. And yet he still realized he had nothing at all. You know, we're not told. We don't know what was in his head. We're left to speculate whether at this point in the process he was actually coming to the Lord or there was just that curiosity where he wanted to see this guy who everybody was talking about. But one thing for sure is for sure that Jesus, the one who knew all people were told in John 2, 23 and 24, It says there as well, he himself knew what was in man. As it talked about how he didn't trust everybody who was following him because he knew their hearts. He knew there were people that were just following to see the next trick, the next spectacular miracle. Maybe get in on something of themselves. Jesus was the one who could sniff out hypocrisy. He could see the self-righteousness of the Pharisees after he healed the paralytic. He could read their minds. He healed the paralytic and they were standing there and he turned and he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? They might have been surprised. And yet, they might have just thought, well, it's obvious. The looks on our faces. Jesus was the one who could see right through a person without even looking at them. He was the one who was approaching. 
Zacchaeus. Verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Wonder how exactly that played out. We could imagine what happened. We could imagine that Jesus was walking along and all of a sudden as he was passing by, he stopped and then slowly turned toward Zacchaeus and said what he said. That'd be kind of dramatic, but maybe he just was walking along and casually said, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. Imagine that, just walking into Jericho, seeing somebody and saying, I'm on my way to your house. We don't know exactly how it played out in your own mind. You can do it one way or the other, dramatic or casual. However, the surprising thing is that he knew him. He called him by name, but he knew him. As Jesus knows all men. He knew Zacchaeus' sin. He knew the evil that he'd done against his own people. The harm that he caused to families and individuals in the community. The people who were poor and suffering. Because of this little guy who was trying to take care of himself. He knew the wicked selfishness that was in his heart. And yet we have what it seems just another case of Jesus' random love. Where he chooses to love somebody that maybe others would think is unlovable. But we know that with God with his son nothing is random when I think of this random love I think of the situation where he was talking to the rich young ruler who was questioning him and it says he looked on him and he loved him now of course the rich young ruler he turned and he walked away and we don't know the rest of the story I wonder if Because, and only because it says Jesus loved him, if something else changed later and he came around. But we do know more of the story here with Zacchaeus. This man who Jesus looked on and loved and said, I'm going to your house. Verse 6 says, so Zacchaeus, he hurried and he came down. And received him joyfully. And when they saw it, the rest of the people, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. The crowd who was hoping for their brush with celebrity that day. Who was hoping to see a miracle or maybe to get a miracle themselves. They thought we've been beaten again by Zacchaeus. They might have started to wonder why on earth 
Is Jesus going there? Is Jesus attracted to the rich? Is he somebody who's in control by wealth as well? What's going on? But we find out that Jesus was not after Zacchaeus' wealth. Verse 8 says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, <laughs> There's a chunk missing there. The whole part about them sitting around the table and whatever they talked about and how Jesus communicated what he was all about to Zacchaeus. But this is Zacchaeus' response. He stood and he said to the Lord, verse 8, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Four times over. We understand what Jesus must have said. We understand that Jesus wasn't just sitting around the table talking about the stock market with Zacchaeus and how things were going, you know. He was talking about another kingdom. Maybe challenged him with those words no man can serve two masters. can't serve both God and money. And here we witness a change of kingdoms where Zacchaeus was fully immersed in one kingdom. Unrighteous mammon, I think is the King James term for it. Money, wealth. He wasn't just immersed in that kingdom. He was one of the leaders in that kingdom. And a transition to the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of righteousness. See, Jesus was not attracted to the rich, but he was attracted to the repentant. And this Zacchaeus, he was a reprobate. More so than, than some in that time. He was rejected by everybody else. But this little man who was such a horrible sinner, he recognized the rebellion. Somehow God worked in his heart and caused him to understand that he was in rebellion against the true king. And he was ready to repent. Jesus is drawn to those who draw near to him in humble repentance. And verse 9 says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Interesting. He calls him a son of Abraham. We could say, well, genetically he was. <laughs> I'm sure everybody in that community had long since cast him out 
of their community, of their family. And yet today, Jesus was proclaiming that he was the son of Abraham genetically and spiritually. You see, Jesus didn't come to be a celebrity, to be celebrated by us as anyone else could be celebrated for something great they have done in the past. And I think that's what some people think Easter is all about. Oh, this Jesus, he was a great teacher, taught about love. Look how he sacrificed himself. Look how he, he, he just did a tremendous act of love. In a sense that I suppose anybody could understand. And then we, what do we do with our celebrities? We identify with them as fans. And it gives us this small feeling of goodness in ourselves because we connect to them and in a way we think we participate in their great act. No, Jesus didn't come as a celebrity. Jesus came to present himself as king. He came to be king because he was king. He was the true king. And he came to release his subjects from the slavery of sin so that they could be a part of, so that they could serve in his eternal kingdom. See, sometimes I think we, we lose this aspect that we have been called to be a part of and serve the true king of kings, be a part of his kingdom. You think, well, it's, it's hard for us. You know, we're so many thousand years after all of this. We're, we're learning from it out of a book. But you know what? The crowd in Jerusalem, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, it was prophetically proclaimed that he would be king, that he was king. In Zechariah 9.9, it says... Your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And yet what happened with that crowd? The crowd just filtered away at the end of it. I wonder if there was a, a sense of disillusionment. From one moment, they're, they're hosanning, praising him, calling out to him, saying he's our king, and then he gets to the end and goes into Jerusalem and, and nothing happens. Shouldn't he have been enthroned by the enthusiastic throng? Shouldn't they have put him in the biggest castle in Jerusalem? And yet they go home like we often do after a worship service with no change. We sing the songs, the right words. We focus on the word, tell us the right things. Then we go home and maybe nothing changes. 
if you follow this progression in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 21 on to 27, it starts out in 21 with the triumphal entry. But then after the triumphal entry, Jesus goes it on his own. He goes in and he cleanses the temple on his own. We don't read about anybody else helping him, do we? He goes in as the the true king to claim territory. But he does it on his own. Not one of his subjects is helping him. Then he confronts the Pharisees on his own. They're attacking him and he's defending his position on his own. On his own. Then he curses the fig tree. An act that he alone understood. Symbolic of God's attitude toward his failing people Israel who were producing no fruit. There was no submission. There was no repentance. There was no willingness to return to their God and the father of their people and recognize him as king. And so we understand the response of the crowd in Jerusalem, the general crowd. Because we started in Matthew 21, we get to Matthew 27, and in Matthew 27, that crowd was swayed, was persuaded. Instead of yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they yelled, crucify him. Crucify him. And tacked onto that was this statement, we have no king but Caesar. You can read about that in John nineteen fifteen. The chief priests proclaimed that. Did you hear what I just said? The chief priests. The preeminent religious representatives of the people before God intoned the words, we have no king but Caesar. You, Jesus, are not our king. Whereas the chief tax collector, the top trader in the Jewish community, the one who had sold out to Rome and Caesar, he proclaimed through his repentance, and you see it there in his repentance, it's absolute repentance, his conformity to the laws of Christ's kingdom. He said, you are king. And more than that, he said, you are my king. Your will be done in my life. 
We could go back and talk about many things in the law. But I want to note that verse in Micah 6, 8. says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To be righteous. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God your king. The chief priests missed it. But the chief tax collector didn't. And so Zacchaeus, the ruthless tax collector who ambitiously ran ahead of the crowd on the road, the broad road, who foolishly scrambled up a tree in order to climb above the crowd, he ended up standing apart from the crowd. The crowd in Jericho, the crowd in Jerusalem, even the crowd today. He stood apart with absolute repentance. We read what he he says. (laughs) I'm going to give half of my goods, half of all that I have, I'm going to give it to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. That was where he began his spiritual journey. I know a lot of times we think, you know, I should be more committed, but I'm not ready for that. I haven't grown to that place where I'm ready to give up this or that, or I'm willing to conform and say, God, your will be done in every part of my life. I don't know if you noticed, this is the very beginning of his spiritual journey. And he has this attitude that is 100% all in. The only thing that changes, the only thing that's supposed to change is the way that applies to our life. But the attitude, the apostle Paul says later, is to remain the same. We're supposed to be all in. We're not supposed to be saying, well, I haven't been a Christian that long or I'm not that spiritual and what we see in this chapter in Luke is that if there is to be a triumphal entry if Christ is to take the throne if he's going to wear the crown then there must be a personal response on the part of the individual to give up the throne To give up the crown. You see, the religious people in this chapter don't understand. They don't see the need. They think they're on the right track and they're sort of waiting for Jesus to come back and, or maybe I should say, God's Messiah to come back and claim the throne in Jerusalem 
and fix everything up for them. Think back to a chapter or two earlier, Luke 17, it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. You see, the Pharisees, the religious, they were interested in the kingdom of God. They knew about the kingdom of God. They wanted to know when it was going to happen. And he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. He says, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you, could be translated. The kingdom of God is right in front of you. And indeed, when the king came, they didn't notice. The religious people didn't understand. But repentant people do. Repentant people understand that they're not on the right track. And that Jesus Christ must come into their lives and transform them. That they need to give him way. And only he can repair the damage of our sin from the throne of our hearts. The kingdom of God is within you. We engage with the king through our repentance which blossoms into a transformed life like, like Zacchaeus. And I think back to John the Baptist, what he said to the Pharisees in Matthew 3. He says, do things that are compatible with repentance. Do things that are compatible with repentance, with true repentance. Paul to Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he talks about the gospel. He says, the gospel calls for people to respond with deeds that are consistent with repentance. And I ask the question about my own life. Where I would have been in this story I'm glad for the spectator's view of all of this. I can sit and read it and I can observe this group and that group and what's going on. And, and of course, we got the Coles notes later on that, that explain exactly who Jesus is. And, and But you know, there will be many times in our lives where we're like these people we won't understand all that's going on. Jesus is passing by. There is some challenge that we've been given to respond to because his spirit speaks to us and says, change this or change that. Honor me. Don't let him pass you by. We can't let him pass us by without acknowledging him as king, as our king.
Yes, when Jesus came into the world, it was prophesied, it was planned, it was part of, part of God's communication to the world, Jesus entering Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey to make that statement that he is the king whether anybody really responded as they ought. Including his own disciples. It says they didn't understand. But let's learn from Zacchaeus. Let's learn from this guy who should not have been the example for us all, but was. Simply because he was curious and wanted to see Jesus and Jesus loved him, did a work in his heart. And he recognized him as king. Not just in a superficial way, but profoundly and in his heart. Let's learn from this little man who climbed a sycamore tree and ended repenting, repenting before Jesus Christ and following him as his Savior, as his Lord, as his King. So remember our own sin, the ashes, the charred pieces of wood snatched from judgment you and I. The little stand there on. I needed to trim some branches off of a sycamore tree. You might want to take note. It's kind of got a blotchy kind of bark on it. Maybe sometime in the future, it'll be a reminder for us, we'll see this tree with blotchy bark. We'll remember it's a sycamore. And we'll remember Zacchaeus. We'll think about repentance. We'll remember our sin. When we do that, when we deal with our sin, we come face to face with our Savior and King. Father, help us. Help us to know you as we ought. Help us to be willing. It's not a big trick. I know, Lord, it's not our intellect. It's not our intelligence. It's our willingness to submit. It's our humility. May we be ready to look at our lives, to acknowledge our sin, to see where we've gone wrong. May we be willing to recognize that you are our only hope. You're our Savior. You're our Lord. You are King. And Lord, may we not see service to you as something that is a burden, is overwhelming, or abuse. but may we see your authority in our lives as something that is capacitating us to fulfill all our hopes, 
all our dreams of significance, of importance, because we will be a part of your kingdom. We will be serving the only truth that matters eternally. You are Lord. You are Lord.